Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Thank you, Gagnons. Love that family. They've been so faithful, consistent, part of our church and ministry in so many ways, but in quiet ways. You guys just just don't make it about you, do you? It's like right back to that first song we opened up with, not to us, but to your name be the glory and just who you are. And if you ever want a real handshake, shake Toby's hand. <laughs> I believe that handshake is responsible for keeping many emergency rooms alive in slow periods and stuff, but uh, really thankful for your family and just the testimony that you guys are. And I and I think that that was kind of a, a decoy or a ploy or something to bring the cuteness factor up on the stage with you so we all paid attention more and everything, so well done. We're going to work on that each week. We're going to have a subtle little trick to bring you into the realm of the scriptures more. Um, but I, I'm just struck with how we ended our time in song and just being focused on the goodness of God and and how He loves us and and and, and as I was thinking about as we walk into this passage in Ephesians six and going man even the things that we have to do, God gives us an avenue and a way to to experience pleasure and purpose in them. We've talked throughout Ephesians about some of the things, especially in the latter part of the letter, of the things that we that we have to do. Um, you know, we have families, you know, obviously that's a choice of ours and stuff, but we have families. And so oftentimes being a spouse feels like some days are a little less romantic than others. And these are the things that we should be doing. And so we stay connected and, and moving into those relationships or we raise children. And so there are plenty of times where we go, okay, well, they're just adorable. They're easy to have. And then other times they're not so cute. And so we have to be their parents. And yet the Lord still gives us meaning and purpose in that. Why would we suspect that when we come to this area of what we do for our livelihoods or the work that we put in to this world that we live in would have any less of a promise attached to it? That we might experience the goodness of God and the pleasure of God even as we put, to use the old expression, put our hand to the plow. It isn't always the way. A lot of times we approach our work as something that we have to do. Uh, employees in a Detroit business office found the following important, albeit heavily sarcastic, notice on the bulletin board. This is what it said. The management regrets that it has come to their attention that workers dying on the job are failing to fall down. 
This practice must stop as it becomes impossible to distinguish between death and the natural movement of the staff. Any employee found dead in an upright position will be dropped from the payroll. Yikes. Work is one of the biggest facets of our lives. Whether you leave your home to draw a paycheck, whether you work from home to draw a paycheck, whether you work in the home with no paycheck, or maybe you've worked all your life and now you're in a season of not needing to go and punch in or punch out or to work for the man. Uh, but work is one of the biggest facets of our lives, and yet we rarely examine it from God's perspective. It seems popular nowadays as we live our lives in church or in Christianity that we sometimes see a distinction between what is referred to as the sacred and the secular, that we separate the things that I do th- to survive throughout the week so that I can come into my religious experience or environment and then I'm more plugged into the Lord or what he thinks about what I do. But God never intended for that distinction. Sacred and secular in the lives of the Christ follower are intertwined. So from Sunday afternoon or whatever time we get out of here till next Sunday, the Lord owns it all. He cares about it all. He informs it all. He guides and directs all of it. And all of it can be worship to him. Work is ordained by God. And this is true prior to the fall. It wasn't like mankind messed up, ate the tree, ate the fruit off the tree. And he said, well, therefore, now you're going to have to go to work. If you see the order in Genesis, work was given to man before sin had even entered the equation because God intended something good out of it. God intended something purposeful from it. So all of our work, all of it matters to God way more than we often give it consideration. I guess I could ask the question this way. Is your work something you have to do or something you get to do? What does tomorrow morning, if you go in on a Monday, I don't. (laughs) Some of you may not tomorrow because it's a holiday, but that doesn't let you off the hook with this question. Some of you may look at the Monday mornings, we'll say it that way, of life as a drudgery. Or it's something that you have to do. It's a necessary evil of life. Some of you, though, do see your work as what you get to do. Is it all dependent on the career that you've chosen or the luck of the draw or you find yourself in a rewarding industry? Is it because the boss is trendy and has pool tables in the break room or is it because the pay is great? Or what are the things that get us to think, okay, this is a blessing from God? How you answer that will depend more on who you work for rather than what you do for work or what some of those earthly perks are that you get from work. That's what I hope for us to see in this Ephesians passage as we come to chapter 6. Well, we've been in chapter 6, but it was a while ago. We're kind of blowing the dust off of the text here. We had a lot of holidays, and then we laid out some vision for the last couple of Sundays. So we come back to the letter that Paul had written to the church in Ephesus, but he had also written it with the intention of it spreading abroad, that it wouldn't just stay contained to that one church that it would make an impact on on uh, the other area churches and the other fellowships of believers as well. 
In fact, a lot of the things that he says in Ephesians, you'll see him saying in other books like Colossians and Timothy and Corinthians and those kinds of things, because some of these things are the practical outcomes of all of the goodness and the righteousness that the Lord has given his people. That this is the way we would respond to him by having been saved and been born again under the blood of Jesus Christ. So he has been spelling out for us in this letter a gospel revolution. He's, he's given us a radical and upside down way of living because the gospel doing things truly the Lord's way and for the Lord's purpose really does look different than conventional wisdom. It looks different from the normal experiences of life from the people that we, that we live and move amongst. And so the, so the gospel is always turning those things upside down. And that's what Paul's been laying out. It's upside down in all of these areas. He says that a follower of Christ will find purpose and meaning in truth rather than the giving in to the temptation to lie and cover your tracks, or that there's a way to express godly anger rather than giving in to selfish rage that can't be controlled, or that you would find purpose and pleasure in giving rather than taking the the easy way out, the temporarily easy way out of stealing for your resources. Or that we would use our mouths to build people up rather than tear them down. That we would express and exercise forgiveness rather than retaliation and revenge and getting people back for all that they've done to us. That we would instead imitate the Savior who forgave even though he was being persecuted and crucified. That we would express self-control rather than giving into debauchery and all sorts of, of pleasures of the flesh that just take us where we don't want, intend to end up and, and ruin so much of our existence in our lives, those dead ends. And that we would find pleasure and purpose in submission rather than the regular cultural call for dissent and protest and rebellion. Paul is going for something deeper than surface change or institutional improvement. Rather, what he's doing is he's attacking the heart under the, under the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He is writing to us to get to the things that get below the surface rather than just, hey, it'd be good if we did these things differently. Because Paul understands that change at the heart level lasts longer and is more effective than typical momentary adjustments of our affections. I would put that in the realm of what we typically go through at this time of year. We have our New Year's resolutions. We have our new, um, and I'm not, I'm not looking down on those things at all. Like I've said before, I think the flip of a calendar is kind of like a, a blessing in terms of the rhythm of human existence. We, we have survived the holidays in a lot of ways. We've survived the food of the holidays in a lot of ways, and there's something natural about rebounding and responding and saying, I'm going to do better. But there's a, there's a, a surface level adjustment of our affections that so many people think are going to sustain them for the rest of their lives. And after a couple of weeks, a couple of months, those things go by the wayside. Paul says, I'm not just here to dress up the outside. I'm not just here to inspire you to make a couple of outward adjustments. The Lord wants to change your heart. So the next stop on Paul's revolution tour here is to look at and examine how we approach our work. It might be a weird phrase if you paid attention to the way that that was read to us. 
and you saw it on the screen, Paul starts with the word slaves and he addresses masters. I'd be remiss if I just boiled that and that's the same as us going to work and then not talk about the fact that he's literally addressing true slaves and true masters here. But this is in a bit of a different context in the first century. If you do the research and look into this, you'll see it's not quite the same sensitivities that we have coming out of our Western embarrassments and heinous uh, practice of slavery, that this isn't quite the same as what's going on at the time at the time that Paul is writing this. But it is related. Slavery, when broken down to its fundamental roots, is still slavery. And the Lord has much to say about it, although the New Testament doesn't really address it as an institution. We might want to see the text here say, slaves, it's time to stand up and march out. It's time to resist. It's time to protest. You'd want Paul to say those kinds of things because that's what our culture is saying the loudest. But Paul doesn't do that. In fact, the New Testament anywhere does not address the institution. Rather, it addresses the individuals involved in the institution, both, as we saw from our text, the slave and the master. This is a different practice, what's going on than what we know. At the time of Paul's writing, the, the history would tell us that things were starting to, if I dare say the word when it comes to slavery, but it was starting to improve, even though the institution still remained. They were starting to see more um, acknowledgement of a slave's rights and possessions and the shorter the term was. Most of slaves were freed by the time they were around 30 years old. So this wasn't always a lifelong thing that they were locked into. Masters and owners and those kinds of things were starting to have less and less rights and authority over. There were still pockets of persecution and, and people that took it to the nth degree because that's what lives in the human heart. You give someone a little authority and they start walking around like King Tut and they wave their, they, they throw their weight around and cause all kinds of havoc on the lives of those that uh, they should otherwise be caring for. But for the most part, the, the landscape was starting to see this. This is how we function. There's about 60 million people in the Roman Empire who were slaves. And they would agree to a, a term, if you will, or a contract, or they would work themselves out of a situation. And a lot of times it benefited them if they owed, they could go and work off what they owed. In a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like what we have now with a modern work environment. As I said before, it wasn't necessarily might've started off this way, but at the time of Paul's writing, it wasn't necessarily that they were going and taking people against their will. They would sometimes take people as prisoners of war and turn them into slaves, but they weren't going as we've seen uh, in, in, uh, in somewhat recent history, going, snagging people from the places in which they live, going against their will and then having no recourse or no way out unless someone were to come rescue them. These were arrangements entered into on both ends for the most part. But still the practice itself wasn't necessarily the thing that the Lord saw as the best way forward. So how do we change that? How do we, how do we move this and grow this out of what it was? If it were to stop suddenly because the protesters would have their voice or Paul comes out and just says, it's got to go away. We just got to do away with this. Their economic livelihood would crash. 
So the Lord seemed to have a different way to change the heart of the person to see that Jesus himself and all that he went through and all that he did led to a different course of action so that eventually that heart change in the lives of individuals would change the culture in which they live. I say all of that to say, as we talked about Paul's writings towards women and in marriages and that sort of thing, the easy, lazy way out is to see something that's written and say, well, Christianity endorsed slavery because Paul didn't say protest. Paul didn't say run away. Paul didn't say resist. That would be the lazy approach and it would be the incorrect one as well. So we don't look at this text and try to modernize it and justify or seek its approval over the practice. It's still a dangerous weapons in the, a dangerous weapon in the hands of sinners. God knew that and God was, was making his plan and making his move to overturn it. And it had in so many ways over time. Again, we go back to Paul's focus though. He's laying out a gospel revolution, an underground movement, if you will, or a grassroots movement that would eventually weed out ungodliness. All of the modern, I say modern over the last several hundred years and things, all the abuses that came into this practice of slavery were, were in, in, in ignorance of what the scriptures taught about everything that people have individual worth and how we approach one another and all these kinds of things. And, and no surprise, people in history said, um, we believe the Bible says this, so we're going to go and do this. And it becomes a major offense, becomes a, a, a black mark on the history of mankind because again, people use the scriptures to justify things God never intended. It's easy to do. How many cults have we seen started by people who have said, well, I'm here to represent Jesus or I speak for God and they use scripture to twist God's will and intent. I think it's interesting to continue to notice the pattern that Paul writes in. He's he's been addressing the person that society considered the least significant. He addresses them first. He spoke to wives when he wanted to talk about marriages. He he spoke to children when he wanted to talk about obedience. And now he's speaking to slaves first when it's talking about how to conduct themselves in this relationship. And again, even though it might seem to us in a, in a, in a, um, a mature Christianized culture over a long period of time, that he should be saying things differently or he should be hitting such and such a thing harder. Remember the person in the, in the church themselves, if they hear their position being called out, if a wife is being addressed directly or if children are being addressed directly and slaves who would no doubt have permeated that church in Ephesians as well as some of the slave owners, that as Paul addresses them, it elevates their purpose. He's talking to me. Somebody sees me. I exist. You mean the word of God being presented and spoken is for me? This was not a thing that they enjoyed at that time. So Paul was being revolutionary in even addressing them in his letter. So we've set the stage. We've talked a little bit about the history. There's certainly a lot more that we could say about the distinctions between what we know to be slavery and what Paul was writing into at the time. But suffice it to say that the, it's not a stretch for us to say that we can adjust our work environment to the text that Paul has written. It's safe for us to do that. It's not a stretch. It's not a, it's not a glossing over a painful history. So let's go back to the text with some of that understanding. 
Back in verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Bond servants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. To use an expression of our modern day, I would say that Paul is getting at the fact that when we approach our work, it needs to look like Jesus. It needs to act like Jesus. It needs to have the impact that Jesus' work had. So I would say it's kind of like job shadowing Jesus. You might, ha- you might know how to do your job. You might have done it for a long time, but you know what it means to job shadow somebody. You show up for training and that person's supposed to know everything that you need to know. But if we haven't approached our work as Jesus would, then we need to show up and say, how do I do this? And how do I do it like you would do it? I think most of us probably by now understand that Jesus did have a job and a skill his whole life. And it wasn't preaching. It wasn't serving communion. It wasn't doing all the churchy religiosity things that we would expect. He was a woodworker. He was a craftsman. He was a carpenter. Maybe you've seen that scene from the Passion when uh, Jesus is building a table and and stools. And Mary is trying to get his attention. She's calling for Jesus because dinner is ready. And can you picture the scene? He's so intently focused on his craftsmanship that he doesn't hear her calling for him. And, 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 the, and I think the movie captures it brilliantly that as, as if the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of everything wouldn't be intently focused on producing something perfect like the perfectly balanced and well-formed chair. And he's, he's involved in it and he's scratching it away and he's sanding it just right. He's engaged in his work and we get just a glimpse of who Jesus was in learning a craft and producing it excellently. So he knows something, in other words, of what it means to work well. So Paul is going to lay out here for us several qualifications. If we are the workers, which I think encompasses all of us, then we should approach it certain ways. And he gives us a very helpful list here. It starts with working respectfully. <laughs> Every once in a while, we come across a word in the text where I'm like, we could just camp out here, Right. And like, if, if nothing smacks our culture more in the face, it's like, do you respect the people you work for? What's, I, all right, I'll prove my point. If I say, my boss is an, what's the next word that all comes? You don't even have to think about your boss, but you know what culture fills in that blank with, right? We don't, we don't approach our supervisors, our seniors, our superiors with respect, That person's such an idiot. I could do their job in my sleep better than they can do. Paul says, "Eh, not so much as a follower of Christ. What if it's true though? What if, what if, what if your boss really is an idiot? Doesn't know what he's doing. She doesn't know what she's doing. You could literally do the job better. What do you do next? Paul says, I still want you to respect them. There's a theme here, right? Wives, what if my husband is an idiot? What if he's not doing all the things that God has called? I want you to find a way to show him respect. Children, what if my parents are absolute train wrecks? (laughs) You know, that's like the modern version of every TV show and everything, right? Children have all figured it out and parents are just stupid. It's the way we see it all. 
Paul says, no, there's still respect to be shown there. And it's not disingenuous. Paul uses the phrase fear and trembling to communicate reverence and respect, not cowarding and not fawning over and not kissing up and all those kinds of things, but just to say, hey, look, I don't know all that they're going through. I don't know all that the Lord is doing in me because I have to work for the idiot um, or any of those kinds of things. How do I know all of the perspectives that I'm not being shown I need to show my boss, my supervisor, the people I work for, respect in fear and trembling, even towards the unworthy. And you say, I I don't know how to get there. I'm not sure how to pretend. And I don't think you have to. We see it often when it comes to the office uh, of those that we um, serve under or those that we elect and those kinds of things. There's the low approval rating of those that are in Congress and all those kinds of things. But still, we're supposed to show some respect for the level that they've achieved or the office that they represent or the fact that they stand in some ways as representatives of ours. And, and, and as even as I say this, I'm like, what a hard sell today. So Paul is calling us to a radical and upside down standard. What would it look like if God's people said, we don't know how to show respect all the time for the unworthy, but we're fighting to get there. We're looking for those things. We might stretch it a little bit and say, well, I've got to show some respect. I'll find something. What changes in a culture when others see us not just doing what everybody does, which is rail against the leadership, call everyone an idiot, think we can do their jobs better and all those kinds of things, and yet still get nothing done, which is so often what happens with complaining. Instead, we respect the office or a way that we can respect those that serve over us or lead over us genuinely is to uh, respect the weight of responsibility that that person carries, even if they're not handling it well. There's a way for us to back up and say, but that pressure is not on my shoulders. I don't know what I would do in those situations. If you've had any of those opportunities to fill your boss's shoes, you know how quickly of an enlightenment enlightenment you receive when all of a sudden you have those same pressures, responsibilities, and sleepless nights to make a thing work. Not to say that everyone's as good at it as the other person, but the responsibility is there. Isn't it amazing how our children become so appreciative of their parenting once they have their own? kind of the same principle playing out. This is how Paul also addresses it with Timothy as he's raising up Timothy to be a leader of his church. And he's saying, this is the the tone that you need to set for those that are in your church. Again, Timothy, no doubt, would be serving as the pastor over those who were in slavery and those who actually were slave masters. So he says in 1 Timothy 6, let all who are under a yoke of bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. He says, regard them. I'm not saying they're worthy of it, but the, the bond servant is to, is to, um, is to regard them as such so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So not only would we be dragging the name of God through the mud if we don't show the proper respect for those who are overseeing us, but we would also be withholding the impact of teaching because we would be saying one thing and doing another. I trust that the Lord is sovereign over all, that he's, he's good at every turn, that he's got my best interest at heart, but this moron over here is blown it at every step. 
Well, wait a second. Didn't the Lord put you in a place to serve under that moron? Was he not the same God who gave you this job that was a blessing from above just six months ago? Did God make a mistake? I hope you hear what I'm saying here is that it's a tone and it's a perspective. It's not excusing bad management or terrible people. It's how we approach them. In verse 2 in this Timothy passage, Paul writes and says, Those who have believing masters must be uh, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And it seems a little bit weird. What's going on here? Well, you have a, you have a slave and a master in the same church. And that slave might be a Sunday school teacher. How weird would that be? Because in Christ, as we'll talk about in a moment, there's all this equality going on. And that's a a perspective that the church brings and an opportunity that church brings. So when the slave goes back to work, he doesn't treat him as his student. He doesn't treat his boss or his master as, hey, we're brothers, lighten up on me. He says, no, when I'm in that environment, I show him respect and honor because he's in charge of me. He has the office. He has the weight of responsibility. So no matter how chill we are as brothers off to the side, when it comes to the work, I respect the order of things. So the the follower of Christ is is striving towards how do I show respect at every turn? Because attitudes of disrespect taint the work of God and demonstrate a lack of faith in the fact that the Lord is looking out for your interests and he knows what you need. Second qualification Paul throws at us workers is to work sincerely. He says that we would have a sincere or a single heart. A heart that is undivided, a heart that isn't seeking our own interest. How many of us have gone into the job thinking, I'm only here for a paycheck, I'm only here for the 401k, I'm only here for the uh, career launch that it'll give me. This is a stepping stone to other things. (coughs) So there's a lack of sincerity sincerity towards the, the job or the people they work with because, again, you're just a stepping stone for me. And I think Paul puts this here, the sincerity here, because it's a perfect dance partner with respect. Because if I truly am showing respect, I need to get there through finding some very sincere things to believe. If I'm just blowing smoke at you, I'm just telling you what you want to hear because you're the one in charge or you might fire me. All of that wears away over time. And that respect and that sincerity starts to reveal itself as being nothing but a secret agenda or some kind of ulterior motive, which is what we Christians have carried for a label for a long time as being hypocrites. That's where that can show up. So Paul says, no, to have a singleness of heart, a sincere heart, as you would do it if Christ were your actual boss you were checking in with when you punched in on Monday morning. If Jesus were waiting for me to come, then I'd step up my game. If he were my foreman, then I'd work harder. I would shorten my lunch breaks. If Jesus were the one, because he's great. He's good to me. He's perfect. He doesn't deserve my poor attitude or my slackerness or anything like that. If it was Jesus, then I would do it. But Paul's saying, no, this guy or this girl is standing in the place of Jesus for you to have a higher motivation to guard against your temptation towards hypocrisy. This is important for us to find that deeper place where where's the honesty in which I can do this with integrity. 
The noted English architect, Sir Christopher Wren, was supervising the construction of a magnificent cathedral in London. And a journalist thought it would be interesting to interview some of the workers. So he chose three and asked them this question. So what are you doing? The first replied, I'm cutting stone for 10 shillings a day. The next said, I'm putting in 10 hours a day on this job. But the third said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren construct one of London's greatest cathedrals. The perspective was my my place of integrity, my place of honesty and sincerity is not just in what the job is affording me those 10 shillings a day, but it's in the construction of something that I get to be a part of. Who would have thought that they would have picked me to do this? All three guys doing the same job with different perspectives. The point being is that our best work is that which is performed for the approval or the participation with King Jesus so that he gives us this work, whatever it is from the smallest, most mundane thing to the the one with the highest perks and the greatest responsibilities, all of it can be put on the same level playing field when it's given to the Lord that he's allowing me to participate in this. I can't believe it. And I think this is perhaps the chief qualifier out of the list of four things that Paul's going to give us because it addresses our motive. And I don't know if you've noticed in the Christian life, the Lord is always tweaking our motive. That's what it means to plow up the heart, to work in the place, in the center of who we are because we can fake a lot. The motive can't be faked. It'll eventually be revealed. So Paul says, work respectfully, work sincerely, Sincerely, and now work conscientiously. He says, not by way of eye service as being people pleasers. And we've all had our run-ins with those people who they are busy as soon as the boss is coming down the hall. And as soon as he leaves, it's back to paper airplanes and drinking coffee. Only when someone's looking or only when there's some sting of consequence or maybe nobody's challenging the worker above a bare minimum standard, then nothing seems to happen. That's because from the conscience, there isn't a change. There isn't that sense of opportunity or duty or purpose. And so it just comes down to what can I get away with? Paul is saying, please, if you're, if you're a part of, of the hearing of this letter, he's picturing like a, a group of people and he's talking specifically to slaves and he's saying, please don't only be busy when your master is threatening you or is, is, is showing you some sort of consequence. Impress them, get ahead of that, of that, uh, punishment and instead perform as though Jesus himself were, were supervising your work. In, in a lot of our marriage counseling here at Faith, we often give an assignment that, uh, that, that says, do three loving deeds for the other person. And it sounds like a really simple thing, but what we always qualify is it doesn't have to be something expensive. If you say, I'm finally going to knock it out of the park and get that $5,000 diamond ring or something like that. Um, you know, we're not talking about the things that just make your situation worse. So, so, so it doesn't have to be outlandish or expensive. It'd be better if it was small and kind of regular. But the second qualifier is it has to be above and beyond normal. Don't just come back and say, well, I made him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to take to work. So I was doing, but if you've done that for the last five years, then it's not really a new add on, right? So the assignment is to do three loving deeds for somebody else. What is the purpose in it? And especially when that other person may not even know that you've done it. 
If it's for your spouse and you're like, oh, they've been wanting me to get to this thing for the last 10 years. I'm finally going to get to it. And it goes unnoticed. Would you, would you go and undo what you did? They didn't say thank you. They didn't acknowledge me. They didn't applaud my efforts. They've, they've been trying to get you to do it for 10 years. You finally do the bare minimum of what's asked and you want to be celebrated and rewarded. This is the part of the brokenness of our hearts is that we, we, instead of engaging for the benefit of somebody else, regardless if they even have seen it, but it is for their benefit that we're pleased to do it, regardless of the accolades, regardless of the acknowledgement. And so much of our work culture is about how you will reward me for my good job. I want you to notice me, raise me, promote me. And so we have God's people who have the ultimate promotion, the ultimate raise coming for them for all of eternity, saying, you're not giving me my due right now as I deserve it. I've had moments in my career before coming to the church that I'm embarrassed by some of the, the moments that I had meltdowns a little bit, just many ones internally. They, you know, they didn't see me throwing things around the office, but I had expected certain things to come true. And when they didn't, I felt wronged. And in my youth and my ignorance, even though they knew I was training for ministry and I was supposed to have this wild heart after Jesus, I was like, but you're not giving me what I deserve. And I look back on those moments and just in utter embarrassment thinking, did I taint the reputation of Jesus? Did I pull away from all that he was building in my experience with these people that I was trying to live my faith before? But once it costs something, I mean, really cost me something, then I lose my cookies and nearly my reputation. So Paul says, if we do this conscientiously, if we do this not, not with eye service as men pleasers or people pleasers, but we do it from the heart. That phrase from the heart supersedes the phrase from the consequence. Work as though you're trying to avoid the consequence. That's not on one of those inspirational posters that has the eagle on there. Work to avoid consequences. Doesn't move the needle in our lives, does it? But we work sincerely, respectfully, conscientiously because we're working from the heart. What you do in the absence of human authority reveals your allegiance to heavenly authority. Hey, they're not here cracking the whip. I don't have to lift a finger. We've limited our work to only be for the person who can make us pay for it or or crack, or, you know, get us to move forward and do more and that sort of thing, rather than the expectation that Jesus is our boss who is always looking and always expects the best because that's what he put into it as well. He stared intently at that chair as he got it just perfectly level and sanded to the perfect degree. He's saying, I've given you every resource and opportunity. Why wouldn't you reflect me in that? It comes from a place of understanding who your boss is. It comes from a place of understanding the work you've been called to do and being resolute towards it. John Kenneth Calbreth was a noted economist in the early 1900s who was called upon by many dignitaries to help sort the economic markets. And he writes the following story in his autobiography about his housekeeper. He says, it had been a wearying day, and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. Get Ken Calbreth up. This is Lyndon Johnson, she says. He's sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. We'll wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, you see, I, I work for him, not for you. 
When I, when he, and then Kelbreth says, when I called the president back, he could scarcely control his anger, frustration, his pleasure. Tell that woman I want her here in the White House. She was committed to her boss above every other distraction, temptation, to serve a more uh, a lesser purpose, if you will. She knew her longevity with her own career would be to please the boss that was directly responsible for her success. Even when such pressures like the President of the United States trying to detract her. That is the conscientious work of someone committed to working for their Lord. And lastly, Paul says that we are to work pleasantly. So let's pick back up in verses 7 and 8. He says that we are to be rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. It's reciprocal in that sense, whether he is a bondservant or is free. He says that we are to engage with goodwill or a cheerful countenance, which again is crazy and countercultural. If people start seeing you enjoy your work on the job site or in the office, they're going to think, oh no, they're about to shoot us all up. What's going on? This person's crazy. They've lost their mind. It's not that no one enjoys their job, but for the most part, people do not walk in with any kind of joy or pleasure just because. It's only when it's time to celebrate somebody's birthday and there's cake in the conference room. Now it's okay to smile, to look forward to it. For the follower of Christ, though, proof of faith in God's big picture is on display when we actually express pleasure with our work. If we think about this and we tie this into the uh, slavery that we're more accustomed with learning about, you think about how the gospel thrived during that time. That there was, su- there was such a revolution. I think part of what we experience here in America as being a quote-unquote Christian nation was, was also fueled by the fact that those who are in the worst forms of oppression... And, and were counted as insignificant to all those that they were in front of, found their hope in heaven. Understood that as miserable as this is and as painful as this is, this isn't all we're subject to. And because Jesus is gracious, he would look down on us and welcome us into his kingdom, even though all of these people have counted us insignificant in, 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 in human. The gospel thrived during that oppression because the hope was on something beyond what they could see. And so many of us are walking into our work just seeing what we see, expecting it to give us a payback that it was never promising to pay us back with. That's where heaven comes in. Well, there's two sides to this coin, as we said. Paul had been talking to workers, to bond servants and slaves, but he wasn't going to let the boss off the hook. This is where we start playing with a little bit of like, if I ever rose to that position or if I was ever in charge of, we have this phrase, do things like a boss. It's a human desire to rule. We see it as coming with perks and then various uh, realms of authority. And so we envy that kind of thing. And we want other people to envy us when we get those positions. Being the boss is something worthy of attaining and something that kind of draws our fantasy in a little bit more. But Paul is calling us 
even those that are in charge, if you will, as followers of Christ to have a different motivation rather than the rewards that we would focus on the responsibility. Sounds a little bit familiar, like when we were talking about husbands being the head of the home. And I said that we shouldn't be apologizing, but that's what God put in print, even though it's culturally offensive, but it wasn't intended for him to be the boss in any situation that he would be the one most responsible and most sacrificial. So I have no problem with the husband being the head of the home. If that's what he's going to be the same way with the boss at work. Is he motivated by the responsibility? Is she motivated by the responsibilities she has versus by the perks and rewards that are afforded to them? Paul says for masters to do the same, the same what? The same four things that he said to the worker. He didn't qualify him. He didn't say do some of those. He said do the same and stop your threatening. So Paul is calling leaders, followers of Christ who are masters or, or bosses to lead reciprocally, to do the same, to show them the same respect that you're looking for from them, to approach your work and your people with sincerity, to be conscientious of their needs and their situation, their station in life, and to approach your work pleasantly rather than being the guy who's always carrying a whip saying, I'm coming after you if you disobey me. This takes us back to a theme that Paul had introduced back in chapter 5, verse 21. He said that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The hierarchy that's involved in God's plan is about getting the job done, not because certain people deserve a position more than others. So functionally speaking, he says you may have the position of being in charge, but it's not that you're supposed to conduct yourself as a way uh, as a person who just has all of the authority and all of the weight. No, there's responsibility that we are to be applying to this. The whole Christian experience, the challenge that we have from the gospel is fueled by mutual submission, this two way street way of living, this golden rule in the business world, we could even call it. So Paul says, Guys, stop threatening your people. It's incompatible behavior with everything I just laid out. And if I'm saying do the same, you can't respect them while you're, uh, while you're beating them. You can't uh, show them sincerity when you're not looking after their needs and their opportunities. All of those things are, are out of play when we lose our cool or when we go and throw our weight around. But it's important for us to understand all that Paul is spelling out to us here is that serving others is not a surrendering of authority. It's a sharpening of our authority. It's a better exercise or execution of our authority is to care for those under our care. So I'm focused as a, as a boss, as a leader, as a supervisor, as a whatever I am, given the, the authority over others, I am focusing on my responsibility over my rights. Here's a loaded word. Think about every union, think about every election, think about every experience that we have in American culture. It's all about our rights. HR departments have been hired and, and bloated to make sure that everybody is getting their rights and their needs met. Laws are stacked high to make sure that you and I have our rights and no one can ask us to do more. What Paul is spelling out is, wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't need all that red tape? 
Because people understood that my rights are few, that my responsibility is greater than my perks. That goes for the worker and the boss. I'm not here to serve me. I'm here to serve them. You don't have to protect me so much because I'm not in it for me. See, this is the heart of the gospel. This is why we work differently than everybody else. God looked down on helpless slaves of sin. That was all of us and did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. Out of reverence for God, Jesus walking in respect for his father, the one who had authority over him, he always pointed to, I am only doing what my, what my father has told me I need to do. He's not saying my heart's not in it. I'm just making this guy happy. He, he was fully engaged. You understand your theology and everything is, it was his heart too, but he expressed it in terms of this is what my father has sent me to do. And I'm submitting myself to his plan out of reverence for God. He's showing that respect that Paul's calling us to Jesus single mindedly, or we might say sincerely devoted himself to the work of the cross, to the highest standard of perfection. He was conscientious about living his life above any flaw. And he did it with grace and forgiveness, even to those that were pulling his beard out, punching his face, and putting nails in his wrists and in his, in his feet. Jesus was pleasant, if you will, towards the task, found a way to endure because the greater goal, the greater payoff, the greater reward wasn't the immediate paycheck of people's approval and accolades. It was the dissolution of their sin. It was the rescuing of our feet from dangling over the fires of hell. Jesus led reciprocally what he gave or what he, what he deserved and what he got back as God, he gave even to us in how he served us. And secondly, as we close this up, Paul is saying to all supervisors, masters, lords, bosses to lead equitably. Verse nine continues, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Both people in this equation, followers of Christ, both have the same master and both answer to him equally. God levels the playing field in his kingdom so that those who are important now, so this is what I love about the church. I love it about the makeup of our leadership. I love it about the makeup of our, our people participating in ministry. I love it about the makeup of the faces that I see in this room is you might be a big deal out there. And the world keeps trying to make you a bigger deal. But when you get in here, you're just like one of us. Or you might be small potatoes out there. And when, when you get in here, people are showing you different kinds of respect because of how you're growing in the Lord or what you might know about the scriptures or something like that. That's the strangeness of what the gospel does is it levels the playing field in him so that the person that's a big deal or small deal is nothing at all because it all points to the same master who is in heaven. Galatians tells us that there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're brothers. We're sisters in Christ. Those people that you work with are your brothers and sisters in Christ, or you should want them to be. What if they became so? 
How much egg would be on your face? That person that you're railing against or you're fighting with or something like that. What if next Sunday they show up here and they're like, I just want to give my life to Jesus. And you're looking across the room like, I can't believe I said that to them in the break room. What was I thinking? Now they're in my small group. You might remember as we were encouraging wives, husbands especially even, about how they care for wives, that First Peter 3 said that treat them as fellow heirs of the gift of life. What if that person that you're having the worst fit with or you can't stand or is your idiot boss or anything, what if one day you see them in glory together because they've also inherited eternal life? I know what you're saying. Right now they're not on that path. I get that. But what if they did? We lead with the knowledge that we also answer to someone too. It's not just those under our authority, but we always have someone we answer to. Where people get off the rails is where they forget that. So let's wrap this up. I know, I've said it twice, haven't I? If you're counting. Don't settle for simple earthly success or false hopes of career fulfillment. If you have it, great. I happen to be blessed with a job that I feel like really 99.9% of the time I am not working. I, I get that goal and I understand that desire. But it isn't the be-all, end-all. This doing what I do isn't what's supposed to or is even capable of fulfilling me. Don't look to what you do as your ultimate passion, but who you do it for. You can get more out of any kind of work if you have people under your care. You can get more of their work um, if they're pleasing Jesus. If that is their goal, you can get more out of your own work if pleasing Jesus is your goal from a sincere heart. Hebrews 12 reminds us, we've come to this often lately. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, I don't think I can do this job positively. I don't think I can see it as a blessing in my life. Verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the worst thing that could happen to anybody, which is the cross, despising the shame, forgoing the shame, not being fixated on the shame that was associated and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what are we saying? To follow Christ is to live life radically. The gospel revolution will change your life by turning it pleasantly upside down. It will show you how to speak. It'll show you how to love other people. It'll show you how to spend your money, how to save your money. It'll show you how to relate to your spouse. It'll show you how to serve in worthwhile things. It will show you how to conduct yourself in a family. It will show you how to submit to one another. It'll even change the way you vote. It will do all of those things that we think are outside the realm of what God cares about. It informs it all and it oversees it all. So instead, what we have the opportunity to do this year is to surrender to follow Jesus in a very radical way. And we get the opportunity to do that this week with whatever work the Lord has led us into. Let's stand and pray together. I had such an early start and I was like, boy, I'm going to have to fill in the time. And yet I ran out. I was just trying to bring my best effort forward in my work, I guess. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Thank you, Lord, for working endlessly and tirelessly for our salvation. 
Thank you, Lord, that everything that you accomplished on our behalf took your blood, sweat, and tears. And thank you, Lord, that you saw it through and that you worked it to perfection, that you offered it to your Father as a sacrifice worthy of his great mission. And so thank you, Lord, for doing all of that for our benefit, but also for our demonstration. So I pray this week, no matter what situations, and I do really pray, Lord, for the people who are in seemingly hopeless situations or painful situations or maybe those who are not able to work as they wish they could or where they want want to really put their gifts and their efforts towards lord whatever places you have them in lord heal them give them hope and purpose and focus in all of this lord let us offer back our work to you as a praise for all of your goodness in our lives and may you advance your kingdom through our testimony of faithfulness wherever we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.